Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. We spent the Christmas and New Year exploring the initial verses of the Gospel of John, that prologue, reflecting on the gift of Christ. This morning we now return to the book of Colossians, where we were before the holiday season, to now see what we do with that gift of Christ. How do we live in light of that gift? I want to invite you then to take your Bibles, and if you're not already there, turn to Colossians 4. And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled, The Believer's Testimony Towards Unbelievers. And please stand for the reading of God's Word. For the sake of time, and I can tell you, even by now, we're going to go over. I'm going to read just five verses, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You may be seated. Wisdom is preeminent because sin is prevalent. Or to say that another way, because sin is extensive, wisdom is essential. As Paul would describe it, we live in days that are evil, in a world that tolerates evil, in a world in which evil is accepted, and even in a world that perpetuates evil. To live where wickedness is the disposition of the culture, wisdom must be the disposition of the Christian. The history of the early church is that history really did not look kindly upon the early church. Those who chose to follow Christ were slandered and scandalized. Against the Christians, there were three primary accusations, three primary charges. Christians of the early church first faced accusations of atheism. That's slightly ironic since atheism is not believing in God at all. Today, it is associated with someone who does not identify specifically as a follower of Christ. But in the first and second centuries, being an atheist was a charge against Christians because the God they worshipped was not visible. They had no image of their God. And so it stood to reason for them that if he was invisible, he was unknown and he could not be seen. And so he must be non-existent. And so they were charged with atheism. Christians of the early church were also charged with being unpatriotic. It was an era in which the emperor reigned, and at least periodically, incense were burned as a way to honor and worship that emperor. Christians, of course, refused to do this because that would be worshiping something other than God himself. And so they were considered unpatriotic. And finally, Christians in the early church faced accusations of being immoral. 
They met behind closed doors, and in this era, or at least in that era, behind closed doors is where activities of immorality took place. They were hidden from public view, and so what could be taking place except something that was immoral? And so the reasoning concluded that Christians must be immoral also. Of course, none of these is true, or at least they shouldn't have been true. To counteract the gossip and the indictments, those that were part of the early church could have responded in any number of ways. They could have responded with a defense of their practices, engaging in today what we call a publicity campaign to elevate their perception amongst outsiders. They could have responded with declarations of their own against those who were not Christians. They could have waged war by sparring with those, making accusations against them. They could also have responded in hostility, simply just creating conflict with those who disagreed with them as a way to defend their own honor. The question would be, though, would such a response be more helpful or harmful? Would it be wise to respond to these accusations in any one of those manners? At stake is not merely the reputation of a Christian. At stake is the reputation of Christ. And I would stand here today and tell you that a Christian's relationship with unbelievers must be determined by a Christian's relationship with the gospel. Or to be more precise, a Christian's relationship with unbelievers is determined by a Christian's relationship with the Christ of the gospel. If we believe the gospel, we interact with unbelievers in a way that is consistent with the character of the gospel and in a way that is consistent with the character of the Christ of the gospel. Had the followers of the early church responded in any of those ways, they would have damaged their own credibility They would have damaged the credibility of the gospel, and ultimately they would have damaged the credibility of Christ. The Christian life is one defined by testimony. When we were last in Colossians before the Christmas season, we looked upon the words of Paul in Colossians 4.2 that we read this morning. And what we see there is a believer's testimony of prayer. So the testimony of those who follow Christ is to continually rely upon Christ by continually praying. After alerting the Colossians to pray in verse 2, verse 3 then shows us that Paul himself requests prayer. But his prayer is more specific. He asked the Colossians to pray for him that he may have opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And this serves as an example of a believer's testimony of proclamation. And that brings about verse 5, a believer's testimony towards outsiders. If believers are to have a productive testimony of proclamation, they must have a positive testimony towards those they are proclaiming to. And so that's where we get this rule in. In a world where sin is prevalent, wisdom must be preeminent. Like those in the early church, the character of a believer's relationship with unbelievers must be defined by biblical wisdom. In this one little verse, Paul explains that further, stipulating that believers are to walk wisely before outsiders, making the most of their time with outsiders by making the most of the Lord during that time. And so as we look at our text, I want you to note first the principal requirement. 
The fundamental point of this verse is to walk in wisdom. That's the very first part, walk in wisdom. That is to adopt wisdom as a style of life. Because sin is extensive, wisdom is essential. We live in a fallen world, and we ourselves, even if we've been converted, still wrestle with this sin on an ongoing basis, the same sin that is influencing the world. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, and he he urges them to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he doesn't send them out without first warning them in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Sin holds influence in the world and to stand against it properly, to hold firm so that it doesn't hold sway over us necessitates a level of godly wisdom. It's worth noting that when Christ sends them out and when Christ sends this, says this statement, he's still centering his work upon the Jews, upon the nation of Israel. He's not yet reaching out to the Gentiles. Verse 6, he tells them, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then verse 16 says, but do so with wisdom. Jesus gave the disciples many regulations and how they should interact during this time. And chapter 10 is a whole slew of those. He knows the hardness of the hearts of these people. He knows their hatred and their haughtiness towards spiritual things. And so even though he is the promised Messiah, he understands something important. His presence will be a shock to their religious system. It disrupts a system that they're very comfortable in. And so their reaction is going to be fierce. Therefore, amid those regulations, he includes this warning. Be wise as serpents. Wisdom is a required characteristic of anyone who exists in the current world in its current state. For Paul and all of the writers of Scripture... Wisdom is not merely an attribute or a characteristic. It is a way of life. Wisdom is the way a person conducts himself or herself in a fallen world. Ian McNaughton would describe a person filled with wisdom as one who is controlled with God's grace, shining through our words and our works. Again, wisdom is a manner of contact. James, a half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, affirms this in chapter 3, verse 13 of his epistle. And he writes there, Who is wise and has understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is shown in works. It's a product, then, of the work of the Holy Spirit in one's life. We don't do works to obtain the Holy Spirit. We don't do works to obtain salvation, but rather it is a product of our salvation. Last week, we looked upon the Gospel of John and remarked about the wonderful gift of Christ, the gift of relationship with God the Father, which comes from pursuing Christ. Do you remember how we pursue Christ? From 2 Peter 3.18 and Colossians 1.9, 
I gave you three ways we pursue Christ. We pursue the grace of Christ, we pursue the knowledge of Christ, and we pursue the will of Christ. What is the product of all of that? Wisdom. Wisdom comes from knowing Christ because Christ himself is wisdom, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. So not only does James stipulate that wisdom is seen in conduct, but if you go further down in that same passage, he gives a list of the character of wisdom. Noting in verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What's that sound like? First, it sounds like Christ-likeness. Ultimately, wisdom comes from knowing Christ, and the result of wisdom then is Christ-likeness and showing Christ to others. But it also comes very, very close to the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. That should be no surprise. Wisdom is the manner of our walk. It comes from the condition of our heart then, and the condition of our heart is determined by our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so wisdom is a product of walking with the Spirit. In his work, Spiritual Leadership, J. Oswald Sanders says rightly, if knowledge comes by study, wisdom comes by Holy Spirit filling. Paul's instructions to the Romans include this in chapter 16, verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Let me say that last part again. I want you to be wise as to what is is good and innocent as to what is evil. Think about the significance of what Paul is saying there. It goes without saying that the Lord himself is good. If we don't believe that about God, how could we ever trust him? And so if he was not good, he would not be God. So when it says here, I want you to be wise as to what is good, we could say be wise towards the way of the Lord. But what does it mean to be innocent to evil? Throughout his letter, Paul, all of his letters, Paul calls many things evil. Satan and other demons are called evil, which would make sense because they lack good. And that is evil, the absence of goodness. But they're also opposed to God. And anything opposed to God is going to be evil. Paul also calls this era, this world, evil. And so when we look at Romans sixteen nineteen here, what we see is it's wise to pursue God but also be ignorant or innocent of the ways of the world, because that's where evil is. We live in days that are evil, in a world that magnifies evil. And again, the presence of evil makes wisdom paramount. A walk in wisdom will first guard us from the evil that's pervasive throughout the world. At the same time, that wisdom will guide us in our interactions with others who also live in an evil world. We cannot assume that all is well. We must live with vigilance. We may be uncertain of where spiritual warfare takes place, but we can be very certain that it will take place. And so we walk wisely 
vigilantly. Wisdom is our armor against evil's attacks. When the air raid sirens sounded on the morning of August 6, 1945, the city of Hiroshima thought the attack had begun. They had been waiting for this for many days. They were a large city. All the other larger cities had already been bombed. And so they were expecting an air raid at any moment and had already begun evacuating the city several days prior. But after a few minutes, they silenced that air raid siren. Japanese radar operators looked around and saw only three American planes and decided that this could not be a very serious attack. A few moments later, the first atomic bomb was used and dropped in that city. And we know the effects and the results of that. Often Christians make the fatal mistake of underestimating our enemy. He is vicious and he is determined. And if we let down our guard, he will strike. The Bible warns us not to forsake wisdom. It's not enough to merely know and follow the principles our living God lays out. We must continue to live in them to be kept safe. Recognizing that his own days are short, that he will not live forever, Moses cries out. He prays in Psalm 90.12. You may recognize a verse from our call to worship. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The call to walk in wisdom acts as a warning to believers, reminding us of our need for Christ when those around us reject their need for Christ. And so we have this first first look here, that principal requirement. I want you to note, second, the primary regulation. The primary regulation. In the world in which we live, where, again, sin and evil infiltrate every aspect of life and society, there is a great need to walk in wisdom. But in the case of our text, Paul actually applies that specifically. He calls upon the Colossians to not just live wisely, but he says to live wisely towards outsiders. When we left Colossians in November, we left behind a discussion of the concept of obedience to the Lord, that it was not only a means to submit to an authoritative God, but obedience was actually a way for us to experience the goodness of God, that it was meant for our good. The Lord's mandates convey his holiness, his graciousness, his goodness, and and so on. And so when we obey his mandates, we also experience that holiness, that goodness, and that graciousness, and so on. But now, by directing the Colossians towards the outsiders here, we see something kind of different. That obedience is not merely for our benefit, Our obedience is now a way to bless others. If we disobey, we deprive ourselves of God's blessing. But now we see here we also deprive others as well. Obedience to God is not just for our good. It's for the good of others. In this case, it's good for the outsiders, those who are not believers. 
when Paul uses that word outsiders, every time he uses it in his letters, it is always meant to refer to unbelievers. It always refers to those who are outside the church because they've not put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's highly probable that the Colossians were not conversing with those outside the church, that they'd actually cut off contact. It's not a surprise to some degree, because the longer someone is a believer, the easier it is to have less contact with unbelievers. That's just the outcome of living a transformed life. We have less in common with unbelievers. It becomes more uncomfortable to spend time with them, and so we start to spend less time with them. But that's not what Scripture tells us to do. It actually says the opposite here, at least at certain times. The concept conveyed by that word walk indicates that the Colossians and any believer is not to hide from the world, but to actually be active in it. And I don't mean that we participate in all their ways that are contrary to God. What I mean is that we walk and we participate in society simply because it's there. In our everyday routine life, we go to the store and go shopping, we go get our gas, whatever it may be. This is a way of life to walk with outsiders, but it is always defined by our wisdom, or God's wisdom, rather. This is where the gospel governs our relationships, both inside the church and outside the church. Inside the church, we see the effect of the Lord's transforming truth. We allow the gospel to govern our relationships with one another, with those in the church, through what I'm just going to refer to as gracious accountability. Through the Holy Spirit, the Lord holds us accountable for our sins and offenses to God. But through Christ, we also have grace, the forgiveness of those offenses. That's the very model that we interact with one another within the church We see that in the pastoral epistles. We see that in 1 Corinthians, and we even see that in Matthew. It's the same model for our relationship with fellow believers, that we keep each other accountable. We call out our offenses to one another, whether it be offenses to God or offenses against one another, although they go hand in hand. But we do so by offering grace and forgiveness. That's the effect of the gospel, and that's how the gospel governs our relationship with one another. But now, according to our text, we now see how the gospel governs our relationship with outsiders, with unbelievers. In a principle that applies to all believers, Paul says to walk in wisdom towards them. He describes the walk this way in 1 Corinthians. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside and purge the evil person from among you. So here it stipulates that we judge one another, not in terms of salvation, but through accountability, as I just mentioned. But it says not to judge those on the outside. That's indicated by the rhetorical question there. Wisdom stipulates that we keep short accounts with one another, that we have accountability. But with unbelievers, it calls us to an attention completely different. Why the difference? Because our relationship with one another should be like iron sharpening iron, in which we equip the body of Christ by guiding one another towards holiness. 
But for the unbeliever, they have no understanding of that personal holiness because they've not yet seen their need for the righteousness of Christ. In fact, until the point of faith and trust in him, they will not understand any principle of holiness and they'll reject it. They'll fight against it. That places them under God's judgment of eternal condemnation. And who gets to make that decision about eternal condemnation? It's not us. It's the Lord. So our focus here is not to judge them, but to steward our relationships by walking in wisdom. It's a difference in priority that makes a difference between our relationships with unbeliever or believer. Like the Colossians, we cannot remove ourselves from the world. In fact, to do so is disobedience. We don't act as though we're part of the world. We're part of Christ's world. But we do participate in it. I remember many years ago when there was a debate about what types of Christmas displays would be allowed at a Capitol building in a certain state, not ours. There was always a Christian nativity scene at this Capitol building, but that wasn't inclusive enough, and eventually it became necessary to allow other people, including a Satanist group, to set up their own display. And I remember specifically a woman who had gone in, declared herself Christian, and marched into that Capitol building and and tore down that display and destroyed it. As a believer, I had a great problem with that display myself. I found it offensive, and I didn't want to see it there either. But her actions were contrary to this verse. They were unwise because of the consequence on the testimony for all believers, not just herself. And what ended up happening is that because this became a public event, it created this barrier, a widespread effect on all believers' ability to share the gospel because of how that event was viewed. This point of walking wisely towards outsiders, it is so crucial that it is even mentioned amongst the qualifications for leadership in 1 Timothy. What a person's reputation is or isn't before outsiders can qualify or disqualify a person for leadership inside the church. That's how serious the Lord takes this principle. And so it would seem that it would be just as serious for us. Why is this so important? Why does it even matter? First, I would tell you, because it preserves the Lord's glory. When we use language that is inconsistent with the Lord's holiness, or believe in a way that is contrary to the Lord's character, we obscure his glory. (coughs) People are so distracted by what they observe in us that we obscure their view of him. And what we're doing is robbing the Lord of what is rightfully his, his glory. Second, acting wisely preserves our opportunity. Paul writes to the Philippians, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In many ways, that sounds very similar to what we read in Matthew chapter 10, where Christ warns that they are walking in a perverse world, so they must be wise. 
But now we see here that the reason for walking with wisdom is to be a light for Christ. In our text in Colossians, in verse 4, just prior to what we're studying, Paul has just prayed for opportunities to share. Now he's urging the Colossians to take advantage of the opportunities they may have. To act unwisely risks turning someone's attention away from the gospel, losing not just the present opportunity, but possibly losing every opportunity in the future. And the result is that we rob ourselves of the joy of being used by God. Finally, we preserve their heart. If we act unwisely, we risk hardening a person's heart towards God. It's worth saying, ultimately, I recognize that the hardening of a person's heart is their own responsibility. Just as if our hearts hardened, it is our responsibility. I also trust that the Lord's sovereignty and the Lord's power will overcome a hardened heart. But that truth doesn't deny our responsibility. There should be woe to us when we rob someone of their opportunity, at least at that moment, their opportunity to see Christ because we've acted unwisely. How could we ever expect outsiders to walk in wisdom if it is never modeled for them? How we relate to others is determined by how we relate to the gospel. We often portray salvation as a courtroom. That's the image that scripture actually gives us. We talk of God as a judge and ourselves as the accused or as a guilty party. And then when God goes to pronounce judgment, our attorney, Jesus Christ, steps in. And what God sees is not our sinfulness, but Christ's righteousness. And so God declares us not guilty. It's really a wonderful picture. When God looks at us, he sees Christ. Let me ask you this. When unbelievers look at us, do they see Christ? The primary regulation is to walk in wisdom towards outsiders so that they may see Christ. And so we have this principal requirement to walk wisely. We have the primary regulation which modifies that requirement, telling us to not just walk wisely or walk in wisdom, but to do so towards outsiders. And I want you to note, finally, the predominant rule. The predominant rule. The predominant rule is found in the latter part of the verse, saying just this, make the most of the time with outsiders. Already we've seen the connection between Time and wisdom from Psalm 90:12, when Moses prays, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Notice the precision with which Moses prays there. He doesn't ask for a heart of knowledge. He asked for a heart of wisdom. The two are very different. Because wisdom is knowledge applied, a person can have plenty of knowledge but never have any wisdom. But a person cannot have wisdom without having knowledge first. Moses' pursuit is intentional here. The one who understands that his days are limited is more likely to pursue wisdom and pursue wise living. What's the saying that they eat, drink, and be merry or something like that? Such a saying like that is misleading. 
because it suggests that happiness is tied to a carefree life and a carefree attitude, when the reality is that often it leads to more misery. But it also suggests that wisdom, and in wisdom, there's drudgery. That to be wise is somber and without joy. That mindset misses something, though. In wisdom, there is greater joy because there is great satisfaction in Christ. Because he is wisdom. Moses' prayer makes the connection that when we realize the shortness of days that the Lord has given us, we will pursue the wisdom of the Lord. We look for ways to grow into it. And then wisdom it leads us to willingly prioritize. Not to separate just the good use of time from the bad use, but to separate the best use of time from the just the good use. The concept here is to make the most of the time, to redeem the time, as some would point out. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn with me to the book of Joel. The book of Joel if you're using a pew Bible, that would be on page 712, if that makes it easier. <coughs> Joel, a minor prophet, <clears throat> shortly following the book of Daniel, he opens up with a major drought and devastation. Large destructions of the crops have taken place. Locusts have invaded the land. They've laid waste to it. And the result is economic devastation for the people. And then the prophet Joel uses this as an opportunity to call people out for their sin and point the people to the Lord's judgment for that sin. It's really, it's a, it's a disturbing picture it's described in chapter 2. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 2, it says a day of darkness and gloom. Fire devours the people in verse 3, although they were a powerful people. And by verse 6, they are in anguish. It's a scary, scary picture. But then we arrive at verse 18, and it says the Lord had pity on his people. Just for reference, what you're seeing take place here is that practice of gracious accountability. Joel is calling them out for their sin, but then we're also seeing the Lord's grace prevail. And so the Lord has pity on his people. And Joel goes on to proclaim that should they truly repent, they can expect restoration. Their lands will be restored to their full ability, able to produce and provide for the people. And so their relationships with one another will also be restored. In a land filled with abundance of provisions, they can now resume their banquets and gatherings with one another. But most importantly, in verse 23, it is revealed that they will have a restored relationship with God. Amidst all of those promises, the Lord promises something else in verse 25. He says this, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, 
and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. The Lord would redeem for them the time that was lost, it says. This is the concept that Paul is trying to convey in our verse here. Redeem the time that is available. Buy it up. Make the most of it, as we would say. Time is limited, and there's a need to redeem it by making the most of the time we have with outsiders. There isn't time for foolishness. It's because for the outsiders, eternity could come tomorrow. Actually, Matthew warns that it could even come tonight. Writing to the Ephesians, Paul urges them to make the most of their time because the days are evil. Once again, very similar to what we read in Matthew 10. The world is evil and therefore act in wisdom. And part of wise living is making wise use of the time available. Jesus himself exemplifies this in John chapter 9, verse 4. When he and his disciples pass by a man who has been blinded by birth, the disciples begin to question him and say, Who has sinned? And Jesus heals the man and says, This has happened that the Lord may be glorified. And then he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. There is great commission work to be done and limited time to do it. And that's what's captured by our text when he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. If we walk foolishly with unbelievers or before unbelievers, we may never have the opportunity again. They may be so disgusted or they may so misunderstand the Christian life that they refuse to hear again from you or or anyone else. And so instead of redeeming the time wisely, it ends up being squandered foolishly. This rule, make use of the time, it guides our willingness to share the Lord's message of salvation. When we see the days are limited Desiring to make the most use of our time, we will make it a priority to share. We're willing to share the gospel more. The Lord has placed a restriction on time available to us. There will come a day when we will die, or there comes a day when the one we're wanting to witness to, that we long to see come to Christ, will also die. But time's restricted more than just by death. It's also restricted by life. There are things like work and responsibilities. Even sleeping requirements hinder our time with people we cannot be with somebody 24-7, nor could they be with us. And so instead of unlimited time, we have a pocket of time here and one there. And when we see this, we begin to understand the need to act wisely in every possible moment. The result is we are willing to share. Uncertain about other opportunities we may have, we make ourselves available to the work of the Great Commission. Even more, we're willing to share faithfully. Sharing becomes a way of life. We walk in wisdom continually. Something we do is we go to them. That is, after all, the point of the Great Commission. As you go, as you go about your routine life, make disciples. We're also willing to share more quickly. We will not delay. We will not save it for another day. We do it now because there's no guarantees. We're willing to share more fully. 
Who knows when we will have another opportunity, if at all. And so we make full use of the time by making the full presentation of the Lord's truth. And finally, we're willing to share more accurately. I don't have time to go back and correct ourselves when we share wrongly or unclearly. And so we seek to be precise with our words. Paul exhorts Timothy to be ready at any given moment to share the word. We just talked about this on Tuesday, on Wednesday night, but in different terms. We talked about the need to be watchful and alert to the circumstances of people that demand our attention with the gospel. This is the predominant rule to make the most use of our time. And how do we do that? We make the most of our time with outsiders when we make the most of the Lord during our time with outsiders. I know a young woman whose sibling, whose only sibling was a sister. Though walking with the Lord herself for many years, her sister was not. I could not tell you whether or not they grew up in a believing home. But I know the two sisters had at least very different lifestyles, one with Christ and the other without. They did remain close. And whenever there was a problem, the believing sister was the first to respond. In fact, she was often the only one to respond because everybody else had parted ways with her. They were tired of being used. And truthfully, she was just as frustrated with them, especially those who professed to be Christians, the ones she felt abandoned her. But the believing sister always continued a relationship. And one day the two sisters sat over coffee And the unbelieving one shared of her ongoing trials and struggles and problems and issues, the same ones that were always going on. And the believing one remained silent, offered support as she could. But seeing the time, she decided she needed to go. But as she was leaving for once, she was convicted that the only solution to her sister's problems were not a change in situation, but a change in status. Her circumstances weren't going to make the difference. Christ was going to make the difference. So she went back and for the first time fully and clearly shared a message of truth, hope, and salvation. And three days later, the sister was in a car accident and did not survive. Nobody knows the outcome of that time together, whether she believed or not. But it was certain that when nobody else could speak authoritatively in this girl's life, there was one who walked wisely wisely enough to steward that relationship so that she could then steward the gospel by sharing it with her sister. This is the lifestyle of every believer. The principal requirement is that we walk in wisdom. The primary regulation is that we walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Our intention is to walk in wisdom so that we may reach those outside the church. And the predominant rule is that we walk in wisdom by making the most of our time with those outsiders. So we celebrated Christmas. We looked at three gifts of Christ, three gifts of his coming. The first was the gift of revelation. By Christ's coming, the Lord was revealed more intimately, more fully to humanity. Because Christ was here, people could know God and know about him. And the result of that gift of revelation was the gift of restoration. That by seeing who God is, and humanity then sees its need for Christ. And by his work, Christ provided this gift of restoration. 
in order that we may have the final gift, the gift of relationship. Had Christ not come, we wouldn't have the same relationship with God. Had Christ not died temporarily, we would have died eternally. And now, day in and day out, we experience a more intimate relationship with the Lord because Christ came. We have these gifts of Christ, which is to know God. And now, by this text, Paul is urging believers to share that very gift with others by walking in wisdom towards them. We make the most of our time with outsiders when we make the most of the Lord during our time with outsiders. Let's pray. Our Father God, we look upon these words and and look upon the testimony of Paul, thinking about how you guided him to, to issue this call to walk wisely towards outsiders, Lord. Father, I pray that we would be stewards of the gospel, stewards of the very truth that you gave us by being stewards of our relationships with outsiders, Lord. Father, may you fill our heart with such an intense love for those who do not know you that we have nothing but an intense desire to share this truth. May we seek wisdom which only comes from you, the wisdom that comes from your son, and may that guide and direct our relationships with unbelievers, Lord. Father, we're grateful for these gifts you've given us, the gift of revelation and restoration and relationship. Allow us, help us to steward them, that we may compel one another to know you more intimately, that we may also direct unbelievers to know you at all. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.